Amen. Well, our God indeed is a consuming fire. That is, He is holy, and we are called to worship Him, yes, appropriately. We're also called to live before Him appropriately. We're called to live as He commands and instructs according to His Word. And one of the chief means that the Lord uses for that holy living is in our lives is that we're built up by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. So let's open our Bibles together this morning to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to look at the latter part of this chapter, verses 21 through 31. And we're going to look at this under the title of Children of Promise. Children of Promise. Now, this is um, a fascinating portion of Scripture but it's also one that on the surface, it seems a little bit odd. As we read through it, you're probably going to raise your eyebrows a little bit. It might be a little confusing, but Lord willing, by the time we finish our time together this morning, we will have a firm grasp on what Paul is trying to accomplish with this text. So let's go ahead and read this text. Then we need to lay out a little bit of the idea of what Paul is doing here, and then we will dive in and look at what it means to be children of promise. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through verse 31, this is the living and active word of the only true God. Tell me, Paul writes, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice! Barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. Let's now go before him in prayer. Father, we come before you, and as we have read, you are a consuming fire. You are, as the vision of Isaiah saw, holy, holy, holy. For, Lord, the whole earth is full of your glory. Lord, your word is full of your glory. Your word declares your glorious work in creating the world, in creating man in your own image, And seeing that man would fall according to sin and making a way then, Lord, of salvation. 
that you might redeem and reconcile sinners unto yourself. Lord, for the whole of Scripture points to this one great point, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The whole of Scripture points to this fact that He alone is the Savior. He alone is our hope. Lord, Your Word shows us that that we are without hope unless we come to Christ. So, Lord, that is our prayer today, that you would help us come to Christ, that you would help us to see Christ, to be conformed to his image, to forsake sin, and to live, as the text before us tells us, as children of promise, children who are heirs with Isaac, heirs to the promise of Abraham, joint heirs with Jesus, our very Savior. Lord, would you help us in um, this text that can be a little confusing, can be a little difficult to understand and piece together. Would you help us, Lord, to, to be attentive? Would you help us to um, have open minds and eager and ready and prepared hearts to hear from your word? Lord, for in the strength of man we will fail utterly in that task. But Lord, by your Spirit, through your Spirit working through the words that are spoken and in the minds of those who hear these words, Lord, this task can find great and complete success. So Lord, we ask you by your grace, please help us. Lord, please humble our hearts. Please free us from distraction. Lord, help us to Work hard and diligently to engage our minds and our hearts in the truth of your word. Lord, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, your word is food for famished ones and is freedom for our souls. Would you, Lord, please receive honor and glory in our gathering together today. Would you write the truth of your word upon our hearts? Break us of sin. Make us to be holy, just as you are holy. Pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. So again, after um, reading this text, I suspect some of you have heads that are spinning. What, what is Paul talking about? The bondwoman, the free woman, uh, the Jerusalem above, the present Jerusalem that is in slavery. What in the world is Paul getting at here? And to understand all of this, we have to understand one word from verse 24. So, so at the outset, that's the first thing we have to do, is understand the word allegorically in verse 24. Now, an allegory um, in modern English speaks of a story or a poem or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. Again, that's the modern English. That is not really the meaning of the term that Paul used. So while the scripture is, is translated correctly, this is a term ultimately that was transliterated. It's the Greek word allegoreo. So it's translated letter by letter into the word allegory. Allegorically speaking, Paul writes, 
And that can be a little bit misleading with that modern English definition that, that what this text would then be doing is revealing a hidden meaning because there's no hidden meanings in Scripture. This word has this only one use, and ultimately what it means is to speak in a figure. This is, in effect, a word picture. It is a master illustration that Paul has crafted before us today. MacArthur offers this explanation of this term. It says, he says that this has the idea of one thing being represented under the image of another. In this case, MacArthur said, the spiritual truth is being illustrated by a historical story. So that's how we have to understand this. This is an illustration that Paul sets before us. It's not an allegory as our English language would tell us. Again, because there's no hidden meanings in Scripture. Are there Scriptures that are difficult to understand? Yes, absolutely, and this is one of them. Uh, but can we go to Scripture and you come up with one meaning, another person come up with another, and me come up with yet a third meaning, and all of those be true? No. There's but one meaning in Scripture, and it's the Holy Spirit of God who illuminates our hearts and minds to those meanings. And therefore, if the Spirit is doing the illuminating, He will lead us all to one single truth. There are no hidden meanings in Scripture. And so as we study this, then we have to interpret it according to that idea that Paul is illustrating from the Old Testament what it looks like to, to be under the bondage of slavery the slavery of the law, and what it means to be free in Christ, to be a child of the promise, the promise that the Lord made to Abraham that was fulfilled in Christ. For Christ said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it, to fulfill God's promises to Abraham. So now, if that was confusing, and it very well may have been, let me boil this down just a little simply in a couple of sentences, and then we'll trek forward. The ultimate aim of Paul here is to use this illustration to remind the Galatians that they must learn from the Old Testament. When he uses the word law here, he's speaking to the whole of the Old Testament. And so when Paul speaks of learning from the Old Testament, he's telling the Galatians, you must learn from these truths rather than bringing yourself into legalistic submission to the moral laws of the Old Testament alone. So then let's apply that to ourselves. We must live, as we study this text, this is the, the chief end that we want to get to, we must live as children of freedom, children of promise, and we do that by pursuing Christ in a way that is marked by obedience. We pursue Christ in a way that is marked by obedience that flows from love to Him. Flows from love to Him, not out of a sense of legalistic duty, but because we love Him and we want to please Him. So that's our chief aim today, to, to get to that crescendo where we see that we must live as those who are free from the bondage of the law. And those who are free from the bondage of the law live lives that are obedient and pleasing and glorifying to the Lord. So let's begin, and we'll kind of just take this kind of piece by piece, chunk by chunk, to try to understand the illustration that Paul sets forth here. Firstly, we want to look at the intent of the law, the law's true intent in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, 
We've studied Galatians now for three, four, five, six months, something like that. And all throughout these first four chapters, we're getting Paul's teaching on the law. And I think by now we have a firm grasp really on the intent and the purpose and the limitations of the law. So with that, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here this morning, but this is Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture, and we don't have the right just to gloss over a, a primary first sentence of a paragraph like this. So I do want to look at it just for a moment within this context of the illustration that Paul's giving here. Now, you recall last week we ended looking at this idea where Paul had kind of changed his tone a little bit. He'd been straightforward. He'd been maybe, some would say, harsh or severe, very didactic throughout this letter. But then he goes into this, he, he gives this writing that is almost even motherly. He talks about being in labor pains, like a mother's in labor with a child. So it's this tender, compassionate, pastoral language that Paul used for a couple paragraphs here in chapter 4. But that moment's passed, and Paul is back now to being blunt and pretty straightforward to the point. He begins by describing the Galatians. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, you who are so desirous of the law, you tell me this, do you not listen to the law? Now, Paul has been really clear about the God-intended shortcomings of the law, the the God-intended limitations of what the law was supposed to do. And thus, being so clearly, you can understand that this is a pretty cutting statement. He says, I've given you all this about the intentions of the law. Now, for those of you who still want to live, you still have this strong urge and desire to live under the law. Tell me, do you not listen to the law? The the moral law was just but a piece of the puzzle of the Old Testament. So Paul says, do you not listen to the law? He says, listen, since you're insisting on being under the law, Listen one more time. The law is the Old Testament, and if you're wanting to be under it, are you not grasping what it was written to do, how it is supposed to come together? It says you're insisting on submitting to the rules, but do you not understand that the rules are just one piece of the puzzle to the bigger picture of the whole of Scripture? It's this way that we have to interpret and understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament is but a picture of what is going to come with the revelation of Christ. All of life, all of human history, all of the Bible centers around this one moment in time, this one short period of time when Christ came. The Old Testament points to it, the New Testament tells about it, points back to it, and then points to the future return of Christ. Christ is the center. The Old Testament is said to reveal types and shadows of what is to come. That is the purpose of the Old Testament, to show the great need for Christ, to tell of the coming Messiah, to show the people their need for him, and then to tell them that they must come to him in faith and in faith alone. John the Baptist was said to be a forerunner of Jesus. He was a trailblazer. He came out and made the way clear for Jesus to come. And in a similar way, the Old Testament is but a forerunner to the New Testament. I want to say similar. I want to be careful because it's not a one-to-one comparison, but it's similar in that the Old Testament just blazed the trail and made ready the people for the coming of the Messiah. 
So Paul says, do you not understand this aspect of the law? Do you not understand this aspect of the Old Testament? That it's all written to point you to Christ. And so with that then, Paul moves into the illustration in um, verses 22 and following. And he kind of outlines this section in 22 and 23 of Galatians 4. He said, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Now, of course, Paul's writing here of Isaac and Ishmael. We can pick that up if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 16 and read through Genesis 21. We see the conception and the birth of, of both of those biblical figures. In Genesis 16, the Lord had already promised to Abram that he would give him a son and make him into a great nation, that all the nations would be blessed through him. Abraham was getting old. His wife was getting old. And they started to question how that son might come about. And so Sarah tells Abraham, go take my maid, have a child with her, and maybe that will be the child of promise. In Genesis 16:3. Scripture records that Abram took Hagar as his wife, and she bore him a son, Ishmael. Now, if we fast forward to Genesis 17, verse 16, the Lord promised again to Abraham that his true wife, he took Hagar as his wife, but Sarah was his true wife. And the Lord promised again to Abraham that Sarah would bear him a son and that that would be the child of the promise. Now, at that point, Abraham is 100 Sarah is 90 years old. They are much past the age of childbearing, and they essentially scoff and laugh at the Lord and say, this is not going to happen. But of course, we know the story. The Lord is powerful and mighty to do whatever he pleases, and Sarah becomes pregnant, and she births a son who is Isaac, who's the child of promise. So in Galatians 4, 22 and 23, Paul just outlines that. He says that there's the child of the flesh, the child of slavery, the child of the promise, the child who is of the free woman. So again, he says, if you want to live under the law, do you not understand this, the Old Testament and how it comes together, how it points to those things pointing to Christ, to the slavery of the law and the freedom that we know in Christ. So let's move to verses 24 and 25 and look at our second point, the bondwoman and the law. So we're going to start kind of wading through the illustration that Paul uses here, how he describes the bondwoman, Hagar, and how he describes the free woman, Sarah, and their children, and how that all shows a picture of grace and law. Verse 24, Paul writes, This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So Paul writes that these women and their sons represent two covenants. Hagar and Ishmael represent the covenant of the law. Sarah and Isaac represent the covenant of God's promise to Abraham, the covenant that's ultimately fulfilled in the covenant of grace, the new covenant that was fulfilled in and through Christ's blood where we come to him by grace 
and through faith. So they represent those two covenants. Paul describes the covenant of Hagar, the bondwoman. He says that it proceeds from Mount Sinai, and she bears children who are born into slavery. And there's clues there that we have to pick up to understand the illustration. He says that, that she is from Mount Sinai. She is Mount Sinai, and that description should point us to one thing. Mount Sinai in the Old Testament is the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. That is the place where God instituted his law. He gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on the mount. Moses came down and gave the law then to the people of Israel. So when these Galatians, many of them being converted Jews, when they heard that she is Mount Sinai, surely they would have thought of one thing that would have taken them back to one idea, the law, the moral law, the Mosaic covenant that brought about the Mosaic law, the moral law. So then Paul gives another comparison of Hagar, another illustration of Hagar. He says that she is the present Jerusalem. It says that in verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, Jerusalem, of course, was the center of Jewish life. Paul says, Hagar is what you see in Jerusalem now. Jerusalem now shows you but one thing, and that is bondage and slavery, bondage and slavery to the law. That was the truth of the Jews, um, many of them probably before the coming of Christ, and certainly majority of them after the coming of Christ, is that they were in bondage and in slavery, for they rejected the Messiah. He came, and he did not come in the form that they had hoped, and so they rejected him. They said that he could not have been the Messiah so they are in bondage. They are under the law. Now, Paul, again, he made his point repeatedly about the, the intent of the law. And, and again, I think we understand it. But, but how he keeps bringing this up, how thorough he is in, in his teaching on the intent of the law, I think it should strike us. I think there's something that we can really kind of stop. If we'll stop and think, there's something that we can gather and take away from that. One conclusion is that Paul's repetition here should show us the danger of the law. It should show us the propensity of those who were once legalist and under the law, their propensity to run back to the law for either their justification or for their sanctification. If you know one who has been saved out of some, you know, potentially a fundamental uh, uh, 1970s fundamental Baptist where all they did was follow a set of rules. I don't want to wrongly use the term fundamental because I think it can be helpful a lot of ways, but, but those, that classic fundamental Baptist where they've just lived according to law one, law two, law three, law four. They, they followed a set of rules and that's how they are saved. If you know someone who's saved out of that, I think one conclusion we can draw from Paul here is that they may have a propensity to return to that legalism either for justification or probably especially for their sanctification. We are prone to run back to the same types of sins over and over again. And with that in mind, let's broaden that out a little bit. We, we must consider the reality that um, Paul is giving us a warning here 
about our past bondage to sin in general. Again, this is an implication. And just as the Jews had struggled with returning to the bondage of the law, these Jewish Christians, so too we must realize that we could be swiftly brought back into the bondage of our old fleshly desires if we do not actively, daily fight to kill sin. Now hear this very clearly. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. If you are in Christ, Christ himself will keep you and will perfect you and will guard you until the day that he calls you home. He puts his spirit in you as a seal of your salvation. If you are in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. And when we think about this, we should be shouting glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord that I cannot lose my salvation. I could never keep myself, but he will hold me fast. But this should be very sobering too, dear friends, knowing that the remaining flesh that we have in us must be continually crucified. We must put to death the flesh every single day. You have flesh remaining in you. Though you are in Christ, you have now a victorious nature in Christ, but you have a competing nature of the flesh that wants to rise up and overtake you. And friend, that should terrify you. It should sober you, and it should humble you. It should drive you to your knees each and every moment of each and every day to beg and plead with the Lord to keep you, to hold you, to guard you, to protect you, and to not allow you, like a dog returns to its vomit, to return to your old way of sin. Here's one of the hopeful reminders of Scripture, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands... Take heed that he does not fall. Then he continues, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Again, come back to the key there. The first part of that of that passage. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed so that he will not fall. Dear friends, when you consider your battle with sin, you start on your knees. Take heed and humble yourself under the almighty hand of God so that he will provide you rescue, so that he will provide you a way of escape, so that you will not be tempted beyond that which you're able to ward off in the strength that God supplies. So as we think about the bondage of the law, think also that that we have a past bondage and we must fight against returning to that bondage. We must fight against returning to our nature of sin. But we fight from a high place. We fight in the power of the Holy Spirit. We fight with the promise that our Lord will not allow us to be overtaken. So dear friends, stand firm. Do not return to the law. Do not return to your sin. That is 
the exhortation of Paul when he talks about the bondwoman and the law. Ultimately, it's do not return to the law, dear Galatians. Point number three, verses 26 through 28, want to consider here the free woman and the promise. So we've looked at the bondwoman and the law. Now let's look at the free woman and the promise. Paul writes, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. So he begins, he says, the Jerusalem above is free. Now your Bible should be broken in to go back to Hebrews chapter 12. So turn back there with me. John read it a few minutes ago, and I want to read it again. Again, it was one of those that's kind of wordy, so I thought let's put it in our minds a couple times to help understand. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to focus on verses 18 through 24. Because again, in Galatians 4, Paul says the Jerusalem above is free. So let's read this text. Hebrews 12, picking up in verse 18. He says, For you have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and to the sound of words, which sound was, that, was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses even said, I am full of fear and trembling. So you've not come to that mountain, dear friends. Let's continue. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come, verse 24, to Jesus, to the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Friends, do you see that contrast of Mount Sinai and this picture of terror and dread and even oppression? These people were terrified as they stood at the mount. But friends, we have not come to that mountain We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem where we are free. We are children of the promise. We have come to Jesus to be sprinkled by his blood. And that is a blood that is fully perfect, fully effective. We are in the new covenant, and the new covenant is perfect and complete. There is no further fulfillment of the new covenant. The old had to be fulfilled by the new, but the new fulfills all. It's not complete because one day the completion comes in eternity when we come to be with Christ. But you come now to the heavenly Jerusalem. You come to Mount Zion, to the Jerusalem that is free, and you come, dear friend, because you are sprinkled by the blood of Christ. You come by a blood that is perfect and effective. 
So now we come, we come, we're not in bondage to the law, but we come to the free Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is free, where we are free to love the Lord. We're free to thereby obey all that he commands. That's what it means when Paul says that the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. We are free from the bondage of the law. We're free to love and to obey the Lord. Now Paul continues on. Verse 27 is a quotation of Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 verse 1. Paul interprets that and says, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Now, back in Isaiah's prophecy, this was originally written to the Israelites as they were in Babylonian captivity. It was a promise of blessing from the Lord to those people that you will one day be free. You will one day be numerous and will be blessed. And Paul then applies that. And, and as uh, I saw recently, um, somewhere online, I forget where, um, when a New Testament author interprets the Old Testament, it is always correct. So while Isaiah wrote to the Israelites in Babylonian captivity, Paul interprets that to also apply to Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, and Paul's interpretation, because he was under the inspiration of the Spirit, is absolutely correct. So just as the Jews would one, be, one day be blessed, so too, Paul says, would Abraham and Sarah, the, the desolate one, the one who was barren, she would too be blessed. Blessing would come, and her offspring would be more numerous than the stars, as the Lord promised to Abraham. Then we move forward to verse 28, and we see, really, I think, the ultimate comparison that Paul has in mind as he speaks of the free woman and the promise. Paul writes there, And you, brethren, you dear Galatians who are wavering and waffling and even running back into the law, says, And you, brothers and sisters in Christ, like Isaac, are children of promise. Isaac was the promised seed to continue Abraham's lineage. Those who are in Christ are the fulfillment of that promise. We are the continuation of God's promise to Abraham to make his offspring more numerous than the stars. As Isaac was miraculously conceived and given life by a miracle of the Lord, so too everyone who is in Christ, has been miraculously conceived and brought to new life in Christ. Your salvation is a miracle. Now Paul tells them to remember such blessedness. Remember the powerful working of God that delivered them from slavery and from bondage and delivered them to freedom in Christ. He says, remember, Galatians, Remember that you are free. Remember the working of God just in the miracle of bringing Isaac. Remember the working of God that brought you to life in Christ. MacArthur wrote of this. He said that those who have begun to sink back into the trap of legalistic Judaism must remember that they are children of promise. They're children of promise who owe their life not to their own effort, 
but to the miraculous power of God. For, for it was God's power that brought them to life. And to fall back into the trap of legalism, to fall back into their former Judaism, would be to deny God, to reject the sacrifice of Christ, and to nullify that life that they were once thought to have. So Paul says, remember, you're children of the free woman. You're children of promise. You're those who know hope and freedom, not because of your own doing, but you know hope and freedom in Christ. So then lastly, we've seen the the law's true intent, the bondwoman and the law. We've seen the free woman and the promise. And so now we can have one final point, kind of sum all this up into some application. That's what Paul does here. Again, it's part of what makes this illustration so masterful is there's pointed practical application that we can draw from his conclusion in verses 29 through 31. And here we want to see the lives of the children of promise, the lives of the children of promise. Paul writes, but at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. And so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, so then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. So again, we can get very practical here, and, and that's the hope is to, to see really the applications that flow from this and see it under the idea of the lives of children of promise, because we are children of the promise. In verse 29, Paul gives a warning. He, he gives a promise that comes with it exhortation. He said, just as at that time in the days of Isaac and Ishmael, the, the son of the, the child born according to the flesh persecuted the one who was born according to the spirit. And just as that happened, so it does now. Genesis 21.9 says that Sarah saw the son of Hagar, Sarah saw Ishmael, and saw him who was, had been born to Abraham mocking. Sarah saw him mocking effectively Isaac. She saw him persecuting Isaac. And just as there was strife between Isaac and Ishmael, so too in the day of the Galatians was there strife between the Jews and the Christian, the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. And just as there was strife then, there's strife today. There's strife today between Christian and Jew. There's strife today between Christians and every false religion. Because we stand and declare a message that does not, is incohesive with any other religion. We stand and say with Jesus Christ himself that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. That message that we proclaim from the Bible cannot mesh or work together with the message of any other religion. And so you will have strife with those who practice and hold to other beliefs. Now the word in verse 29, the word persecuted, is the Greek word dioko. Dioko, and it has in mind one person pursuing another, pursuing another with hostility, with a goal to harass or to scare or to terrify or to mistreat. 
And surely that's what the Galatians themselves were experiencing. Just as Ishmael was harassing Isaac, so too were those Judaizers harassing, mercilessly, without fail, relentlessly harassing the Jewish Christians in Galatia. They came to oppress them, to overwhelm them, to bully them, to scare them, to try to get them to relent from the message of the gospel. Christians today endure a similar type of antagonism. We, we will endure that from false religions. We will endure that type of persecution, that type of pursuit from false Christians. And I think what we see in our day is that we will even endure that type of antagonism sometimes from immature Christians. There is an antagonistic pursuit to bring Christians into bondage of an idea or a philosophy or a practice or an opinion that is other to the Bible. That is common today, again, of false religions, of false Christians, and even sometimes immature Christians. As we've considered before, we have no right, we have no authority, no one has no right or any authority to bring others under the authority of anything but the commands of Holy Scripture. We must submit ourselves and we must instruct others to submit themselves only to the truth of Scripture. Anything otherwise is this type of persecution, this type of harassment, this type of relentless pursuit. So Paul says that that hostility will come, and then we see, I think, how to respond to that in verse 30 when he talks about Sarah's response. It says, but what does the Scripture say? Well, it says, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. That was what Sarah told to Abraham, go take Hagar and Ishmael and send them out of your home. Gather them and get them out of here. She told him that, that the, child of, of, um, the child of the flesh could not be mingled, could not be a joint heir with the child of promise. The flesh cannot be mingled with the truth. Now, you may think that's an extreme response of Sarah to say, go kick them out, send them on their way, and, and let life take its course with them wherever it may take them. You might think that's extreme, but it's not. And I can tell you on the authority of Scripture that it's not because we see in Genesis 21, verse 12, what God said. God told Abraham, Genesis 21, 12, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. The Lord continued, Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants will be named. So it's not an extreme response because the Lord says, Go and do exactly what she said, because it's through Isaac that your descendants will be blessed and will become numerous. Calvin warns that we must not overlook the decree of God here. The decree of God took effect in such a way as to evidence that the whole transaction here was directed by heavenly providence. Calvin says we must see God's providence in the separation of Isaac and Ishmael. God's providence here intended and superintended upon the situation to form God's people and to set them apart from the world. This division of Isaac and Ishmael was brought about by the good and holy 
providence of God. This division was brought about to bring God's plan to pass. The division between sin and holiness. The division between God's people and those who are not children of God. That division and separation must come. It must be clear because that is God's will. So Paul gives this warning of persecution and hardship. He tells how we might respond to it by showing us Sarah's response. So we then say, okay, so what is kind of our summary response? Well, verse 31 will tell us that. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but children of the free woman. If we are children of the free woman, we must therefore live as children of the free woman. And we'll dig deeper into this in the weeks to come. Galatians chapter 5 kind of fleshes, and chapter 6 as well, kind of fleshes a lot of this idea out of what it means to be free. Paul begins chapter 5 saying that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. As children of the free woman, as those who are in Christ, we must use our freedom not to indulge the flesh, but to love and to serve and to obey Christ. We must not submit to the yoke of slavery. Remembering that yoke of slavery could be slavery to legalism or slavery to the flesh. Ultimately, those are the same thing, right? They are all slavery to self, to a self-created and self-fulfilling God. We must not submit to that slavery, but we must submit wholly and fully to Christ. We must seek to know him. We must seek to abide in him. We must seek to have his words abide in us. That's how he says we abide in him in John 15. He says it by his words abiding in us, and therefore we will then go and bear much fruit. So we must reject that which would bring us into bondage. Again, bondage to the law or bondage to the flesh. We must pursue only Christ. We must run after only Christ and love and devotion, and obedience. So let's wrap this up. Let's conclude here. I want to do that considering James chapter 1, verse 25. James chapter 1, verse 25. says, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. We must strive to be like those who are described as being effectual doers of the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? Second, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says it is a freedom that is not meant to be used as a covering for evil. It is a freedom that's meant to be used as bond slaves of God. We are free in Christ to live lives of slaves, slaves to God. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. To be free in Christ is to know the truth and to live by the truth. 
Friends, may we live as those who are children of the promise, those who are free of the law. And we do that by continuing in God's Word, by studying it, learning it, meditating on it, and then practicing it. Knowing and living by the truth. That is our goal. And that truth, dear friends, will make us free. So may we live as those who are free. May we glorify God with every freedom that we have in Christ. For every freedom that we have in Christ are but a gift from God. So may they be used for His glory. Let's close in prayer.